everybody, and welcome to the Chaluminati Podcast, episode 227. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by just my co-hosts from LA, Jesse and Alex. How's it going, boys? Now it's wow. a mind game. Wow. Can I? Can now I, it's a mind game. Has the episode of us guesting on another podcast appeared yet? Sinisterhood, yes. The other podcast, no. What is? Are you wondering that's if that's when I stopped it? I just it? feel like our appearance on said podcast broke you it did it did when you said bad branding i was like he's right man <laughs> stop <laughs> i feel like it broke you yeah it did break suddenly me. alex and i have names i have to give you your names because you can't just be random comedians it's confusing to new listeners i think but you do say our names every time people don't you know the first five seconds people are listening and then you they're barely listening and then after that you like the next five minutes Probably not so much. Yeah, and then it's like, it's a Tomb Raider podcast with Mathis, Wallace, and Gromit. And people are like, what? <laughs> 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 uh, you know what, though? We have to, you can give us new nicknames at the live show and Terragram Ballroom on December 3rd, which you can get tickets to right now in the link below over at Ticketmaster. You know, Please, how, you God, know it's come the best show? Us. You know how you know it's the best show? Security guards love it. Every time we do a show, yeah. the security guards who are there, who are like sitting in the corner, hiding away. Like, Yo, that was really funny, man. They laugh their asses off. And I, I look, I look every time because <laughs> I want to win them over. If I can win them over, I know we're doing a good job. Seriously, man. That was good. We had the audio engineer cackling up like in the little box next to us last, yeah, uh, last yeah. show too. That was fun. That's yeah. how you know it's good and not some like uh, cheesy, stupid show. I like that one, man. So I, I know you only got a couple weeks. Grab those tickets. Come see us in L.A. And then maybe we'll have beers uh, prior to the show, after the show, if you can find us. And if you came to the one on October, whatever day that was earlier. All new, all different. This is like the X-Men. All new, all different show. Totally different show than the one you just seen. We're about to launch the Inhumans, the Inhumans uh, of Chiluminati now, because X-Men's done, so. Yeah, X-Men's out, Inhumans are in. Much more popular, ready for success. Great legacy properties out there already that have gone to great success. Inhumans, it's time. That's our new era. Black Bolt, best or worst podcast guest? <laughs> Listen, everybody makes fun of Black Bolt. Black Bolt is my actual favorite Marvel superhero. Everybody step off. Don't make fun of his name. He can't talk for himself. Just respect what he does for all of us, okay? Let's just leave it at that. You can buy our respect somewhere, can't you, Alex? That's right. And you know what? Black Bolt doesn't even say a word. He just lifts his hands up, snaps his gloves, and goes to work on his keyboard, types in patreon.com slash pod, and goes there because just like he's my favorite superhero we're his favorite podcast and he knows that if he goes there and supports us that's how we keep the lights on that's how we keep doing this fine show and we have a plethora of grand rewards in return that you can get like ad-free episodes uh mini sods after every single episode our brand new show rotten popcorn <laughs> mathis Jesse and I are going to be recording X-Files episodes this week. So they're going to be live on there. Mathis, listen, I don't know if you know this. Mathis has never fucking seen the X-Files. What? Wrong. I've seen the first two episodes of the X-Files. Okay? okay. Yeah. So he's basically an expert. That's my bad. But there's more to see. And we're going to continue his education. And we're going to see some Monster of the Week episodes. So come down there. Watch it. What else do we get? Uh, incredible art from Mel. What else? Early access to tickets when we do live yeah, shows. Yeah, early access. Uh, by the way, speaking of live shows, the last live show that I was just talking about, it's free for all patrons. It's another great reason to go sign up for the Patreon. So head over, head over to patreon.com slash 
Shilluminati Pod, the Patreon. I like it. All right, new 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 tagline. It's better than the website. We've improved. We did you like the did you like the cadence of it? Head over to patreon.com slash pod. It's the uh, Patreon. Patreon. I mean, I, you did it. I don't know if I liked it, but you did it. It's the Patreon. <laughs> it's about as self-assured as we are in most episodes on most topics we do. Yeah. Today, everybody, it's time to dive in. I think we got we to gotta get, get in this and get done with it. Uh, we are finishing up the story of David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam. Now, I don't think I mentioned last episode the main sources I used. I think I just kind of dived into it. So at the top of this, let me just shout out uh, my two main book sources that I use for this, Son of Sam by Lawrence D. Klausner. This is basically a really good recounting, detailed uh, kind of just life of Berkowitz from childhood through his crimes, investigation, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's The Ultimate Evil, which is really mostly for today's episode, a book by Maori Terry. And this is a book that we'll talk about more toward the end of the episode that tries to put a different spin and blame on the killings that occurred during David Berkowitz's one-year killing spree. It's almost like trying to shift the blame onto uh, something else that was happening in the country at the time, uh, which make a lot more sense when we get there. Okay. But for recap purposes, let's just talk a little bit about what we talked about last episode. Obviously, we're talking about New York City in the 1970s. And I don't know if you know, but New York City in the 70s kind of just sucks. It was not a good place to be. It was I had a ton of people in diversity. I was also grappling with economic downturns, soaring crime rates. And there was just a lot of uncertainty going on in, in New York around this time. It's, and during all of this, in this shadow of urban decay, there stood David Berkowitz, who would later call himself Son of Sam and emerge as one of America's most notorious serial killers. We spoke about when he was born on June 1st of 1953 as not David Berkowitz, but Richard David Falco in New York until he was adopted and they would change his middle and first name and take the last name Berkowitz instead. And as Berkowitz transitioned into adulthood, his inner inner turmoil deepened further until he eventually joined the army at the age of 17 in 1971, serving briefly before his honorable discharge in 1974 and returning to New York, where he struggled to find his place in a city that was itself still struggling to find its footing amidst the chaos of the 70s. And David Berkowitz's transition back into civilian life was fraught with challenges. He moved back to New York City, um, where there was, like I said, a lot of just kind of unrest. It was against the backdrop, that backdrop that Berkowitz's descent into his chaotic mindset began when he took up an apartment in Yonkers in 1974. And all this would eventually lead him to commit some of the most heinous crimes in American history. Berkowitz's sense of alienation intensified during this period. He did try working menial jobs, but nothing seemed to fill the growing void. He became increasingly withdrawn, spending long hours alone. If you, do, if you remember, he was also a mix of anti-war hippie and evangelical Christian that made him just an absolute disaster to be around. Probably one of the most annoying people to be Pleasure around. Pleasure to hang out with in all social situations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he soon turned inward with that, brooding over his perceived grievances against an unfair world. All that eventually would spill forth into the real world with his first attempt at a murder. Berkowitz, a young man adrift in his inner sea of chaos, had armed himself with a hunting knife, a tool soon to be an instrument of his first attempted, twisted, violent outburst. His target were two women unknown to him, their only crime just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. We were in the scene is set in an apartment building's hallway, a mundane backdrop about to witness a completely random act of, of inexplicable violence. 
And Berkowitz just quietly approached his, these women. His movements were completely like he had like a hoodie on. It was just kind of just walking toward them. And as he got close, he lashed out. The attack was swift and brutal and, and wholly unskilled in a weird sense. Berkowitz's knife found its mark, but not lethally so. The women, women caught in the sudden nightmare screamed and a sound that cut through the stillness of the building. And in the ensuing chaos in the scream, Berkowitz just flew. He just ran away. Do you remember? He just stabbed the woman. She didn't die right away like the movies had portrayed. It wasn't an easy kill. And as she screamed and didn't die, he fucking took off. He just ran, disappearing what? into New but York City. But she did eventually die is what you're saying? Nope, she lived. She did not die. Awful. Interesting. Horrendous situation. Yeah, absolutely. But luckily, they both survived. They were uh, the first real attack of Berkowitz in this fashion. And all they could remember about him is that he was kind of a pudgy guy with a pale complexion and average height. So, you know, not a lot to go on in New York City at that point. And though the uh, though these like they weren't able to capture him, this was a, this is in my mind the turning point for him. It was the first violent outburst of a man who would later unleash in a reign of chaos through the city in the grand grim narrative that he would call the son of Sam. The incident is often just kind of a footnote. This little stabbing is often just a footnote overshadowed by the subsequent shootings that he would move to later. He just realized a knife wasn't the way to do it. He didn't want to actually watch the people and fight somebody uh, to kill them. He just wanted to kill them as quickly as possible. And so he ended up going with a gun. And uh, with David Berkowitz, better now known as the son of Sam, did no longer using a knife, he instead decided that his weapon of choice moving forward would be a 44 caliber bulldog revolver and what he would use in his string of shootings in New York City. What's weird is how he acquired this gun and kind of speaks to the time, though I'm not sure how much has fully changed in this regard. But the acquisition of this weapon is a key part in understanding this guy's transition into a serial killer, especially when we talk about when he starts uh, blaming the voices he was hearing that were commanding him to kill. But let's talk a little bit first just about how he got this gun. Berkowitz acquired the 44 caliber, not in New York, where he lived, because the gun laws kind of made it difficult for him to do so. Shout out New York. <laughs> uh, but in the early 70s, well before he began his infamous shooting spree, which would happen in 1976, and well before he even claimed he was hearing these voices tell him to commit violence, uh, he ended up going and actively purchasing a gun. Berkowitz didn't actually purchase the gun himself, however. He went and traveled out to Houston, Texas where one of his old army buddies was living to quote unquote visit him with the, uh, and they visited a gun shop. Now we don't have the exact details as to how uh, like this all went down because simply what ended up happening was Berkowitz was not really involved in the purchase at the time. The, the, the gun laws were way more relaxed in Texas than in New York. And thank God that's all changed obviously. And through his old army buddy friend by the name of Billy D Daniel Parker, who was with him at the time of the purchase uh, when he purchased the 44 caliber bulldog revolver, it was done in what's known as a straw purchase. What a straw purchase is, is simply a straw purchase or nominee purchase is of any purchase wherein an agent agrees to acquire or service for someone who is often unable or unwilling to do it themselves. He basically walked in and purchased it for him and it was completely legal to do so at the time. And when his friend kind of like was like, why do you need this gun? Because it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, when he was asked this question, it kind of prompted an unusual answer and kind of vague. He simply said uh, that in his non-committal kind of vague answer that it was for his it was to protect himself on the drive back to New York. 
from where they just were? Uh, yeah. So he went, drove from New York to Texas, had his friend buy the gun. And the reason that he gave he needed the gun for the straw purchase was that he needed it for protection. Yeah. On the way back from Texas? On the way back to New York from Texas. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he needed the gun. Because he wasn't taking a plane. He drove. Everything so was driven. So the only reason that he needed it was because he was where he drove to get it. Yep. And that, but that was enough for his friend. It was, wasn't really clear and it wasn't clear if he actually provided any other specific reasoning beyond this, but all signs point to no. And his evasion of a direct answer here suggests that he may actually already have been harboring violent intentions to use the weapon for criminal purposes. Mind you, he got the gun before the stabbing. So the stabbing hadn't occurred when he bought the gun. And his reluctance to really disclose any reasons beyond protecting himself on the way back from his visit to Houston also kind of shows a level of premeditation or at least some sort of awareness that he might be playing with ideas in his head, really kind of feeding into the violent fantasies he's clearly having. Just kind of like buying gear in general for his like character. Yeah. And so when the excuse eventually comes that the neighbor's dog had a demon speaking through it, telling him to commit these acts, bear in mind that all this was done well before that shit was quote unquote happening. Uh, Uh yeah, it's absolutely bizarre. And um, the thing with the the legal loopholes in the 70s with the gun stuff is that it was possible to purchase fire, firearms through all kinds of shit really easily in uh, in Texas and other southern states. And this loop, like these loopholes where you could just have his friend buy a gun for him. The reason he didn't buy the gun is because it would be a little harder for him to get it himself because he's not from Texas and he doesn't have the proper ID and he would need to go through certain checks. While his friend who lived in Texas didn't need to go through that, he could just simply buy the gun for his friend, and that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so these little kind of large loopholes were a uh, big a big reason that he was able to attain this gun so easily, and they are one of the reasons some gun laws tightened up a little bit after the son of Sam ended up catching uh, being caught. Um, so beyond that, we we begin to start looking at when he claims he started hearing voices because from his return. In 1971, by 1977, he's arrested for the killings. He's not around very long, and it's a one-year mark from 1976 when he starts killing people to when he's arrested in 1977. And he moved into the uh, apartment in 1974, approximately a year and a half before he started killing. It was very quick. He got back from the military, kind of set up shop, and after about three or four years, he was already killing people, just for whatever reason. he claims that in 1975 that his mental state began to deteriorate rapidly, and he later claimed that during his time, he started to hear voices, auditory hallucinations that he said were commands from a demon that resided in his neighbor's dog urging him to kill, uh, which, again, when we look about when he gets arrested, that isn't even the story he gives. That is a story he adds to like a year or so after his arrest. Um, he claims that he started beginning hearing voices in, uh, in the mid 1970s, which played a significant role in his descent into criminal behavior. And according to his accounts, these auditory hallucinations started sometime after he moved into an apartment in Yonkers around 1975. That's the one you were talking about. Yeah. Berkowitz is the, remember the letters he sent to his neighbor downstairs. Right now, keep those letters in mind of a context that maybe he's, it's hard to know if he's playing a character to fall back on that excuse when he eventually gets arrested or if he's actually like a broken man kind of mentally. I mean, it might be even a mix of both. I was going to say, I thought 
that it was more like an excuse. Like, yeah, he kind of just gave himself the idea that he was hearing voices so that he could finally have a reason to go do what he'd been planning on doing. And honestly, I mean, it rings of an excuse, but like, you know, I mean, I mean, of course, I'm not going to like say what, which one I think it is because I don't really. Think he also had four Looney Tune style head concussions as a child, so he's probably what, not. Fully how, there. How, how much had he been hearing voices before that? Not really, right? I was hitting the head with a golf club as a kid. I jumped into a pile of sticks and a stick got stuck in my head as a kid. Trust me when I say I have never heard a dog talk. I was 14 so, years old in the jackass era. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah. More evidence, Jesse, that your childhood had a branching path that was serial killer that you could have taken. My parents were convinced I was not. They were like, he's going to be dead. They were convinced. <laughs> I, I one, one time as a kid rode with my friends. We, there was like a mud pit at the end of the street where we all just were like, oh, a mud pit because they were building a new road. And so we just all got on our bikes and made a ramp and rode our bikes into the mud pit. There could have been anything in that mud pit. Snakes. Anything. And we just jumped in because we were like, yeah. Bacteria, shit, The body of a serial killer who hid their victims. Acid. My dad showed up with a stick and started whacking us with a stick to make us go home. He was like walking us down the street, whacking us. It's like a a fucking herding, like a herding farmer. He was herding us. (laughs) (laughs) And you guys like, (laughs) (laughs) One of you tries to walk a little too far away and just get thwacked on the thigh. Yeah, we were like sheep. He was just like trying to get us back. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So look, if anyone was going to hear dogs talk, it'd probably be me. I got nothing. So I feel like... Yeah. It's an excuse, you know what I mean? But yeah. also, again, I'm not killing people either, so... I mean, fair, as far as we are aware. The only dog I've ever heard of said, sup, guys, and that's it. What? The only dog story I've ever heard. I think I said it... He said that as I took a drink. I almost spit it out everywhere. I, did I not say that on the last episode? <laughs> can, you re- can you remind me of the story just so, in case? God. Okay, I... Now that I'm thinking about it, it might have been on Beard Bros, and I don't. I might just be confused, or it might be on Star. I don't. I, I do all my shows with the same fucking people. Okay, here's what's up. <laughs> here's what's up. There's a story. A friend of a friend. They were sitting out one day, like skating, you know, in like the neighborhood cul-de-sac on the porch, hanging out, having some juice or whatever, chilling on a hot day, summer, and the dog was there. And everyone present swears that the dog one time said, sup, guys. Was the but he juice... do it like Scooby-Doo, like, okay. No, exactly <laughs> how I said it. Exactly how he I said it. He just turned in a man's voice and was like, sup, guys. That's an impression <laughs> of the voice. Sup, guys. I like how even the dogs in California are stoned. <laughs> Wait, what kind of breed of dog was it? I'm going to say, I don't know. I'm going to say f- a purebred beagle. Great, great. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm going to just say Beagle. Okay. Well, speaking of it being an excuse, uh, if you look back at previous serial killers we've talked about, so many of them try to kind of create that accident where the killing couldn't be avoided, quote unquote, and it kind of gives them their first taste of killing while being able to rationalize it away in some way. Again, we talk about John Wayne Gacy a lot with that kid who was just making him eggs in the morning. And he claimed that he was coming at him with a knife and it gave him a reason to like fucking kill the kid. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if David Berkowitz is like telling himself he might be hearing voices, but isn't actually just so he can 
make that first stabbing attempt until the voices were like, mm, maybe not a knife, David. Let's try a gun instead. Berkowitz claimed that the uh, voices that he heard of those were demons and they were coming out of his neighbor, Sam Carr's dog, which was a black Labrador retriever by the name of Harvey. So Harvey, the lab was just giving him demon, demon knowledge. And Berkowitz described the voices as commanding and insistent, exerting a powerful influence over his mind and actions. Hey, what's up, guys? Oh, my God. Are you a demon? Yes. That's correct. <laughs> correct. Yes, I am, man. You don't even want him to kill? The demon doesn't even want him to kill? He's like, no, bro, I just want you to, like... Where are you going? Stop. Don't kill those people. Shoot that person? Just like, blap, blap. Don't shoot that person. Berkowitz interpreted these hallucinations as literal commands from a demonic source, according to him, and he believed that by obeying these voices, he was fulfilling some sort of dark destiny that the universe had for him. Uh, Again, if you remember from last episode, he was desperate to be like, a hero who died in combat, known for his heroic sacrifice and all that stuff. Now we've like gone to the other side of the coin. And now he's like, this is my dark destiny. I'm going to fulfill the commands he's, he's of a Rorschach demon. Yeah. Yeah. And like, okay. I don't know what he thought he would get out of it. If he truly thought he was gay, like serving a demon. Cause I'll tell you what, you don't get much, no matter how much you ask. And this belief system <laughs> formed the twisted rationale behind his series of shootings. I, I want everyone to know. It's a little moralizing in the mix that whatever <laughs> You don't get you don't get what you had. Like you added a little bit that just got us all. Papa Mathis. What? What? <laughs> Papa Mathis came in with a little sermon. You were just like, don't trust demons, kids. <laughs> don't trust them. Like a true lesson about them. They're not to be trusted. They're evil creatures. Take it from me. Just take it from me. Whether I'm an expert or not is up to you. What have you given away, Papa Mathis? <laughs> the color of my skin, for one. I'm just oh my pale. God. He's gone. Yeah, I can see his veins through his, his pale skin. <laughs> So this and so moving up, we're, we're now moving into about 1976 ish, where the crime started to begin. And it's important to note, once again, before we move in, considerable skepticism of the veracity of his claims regarding voices. So even some psychiatrists and investigators have speculated that these claims may have just been an attempt by Berkowitz to appear legally insane, thus avoiding a much harsher sentence, or others have considered them a manifestation of genuine mental illness. So there's, there's even split opinions amongst uh, doctors and professionals out there. But if he was trying to go legally, like, you know, the legally insane route, you don't really like that's not a better time. That's just a different kind of hell to live amongst the criminally insane. Like, that's not a better place. It's not a vacation amongst people who are just depressed. That's just another version of hell. But people, you know, that we see that a lot even nowadays, people trying to kind of take that angle. It's important to note uh, beyond that skepticism uh, that before he became infamous as Son of Sam, his criminal activities had already began less noticed but equally sinister. And that's when we look at the very first act, which is that stabbing that we talked about earlier. Now that we're all completely caught up, very shortly after that stabbing in 1975, having the gun in his hands, he knew that the way he was going to kill is with a gun. And the very first shooting that was attributed to David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam, occurred on July 29, 1976. Berkowitz targeted two young women, Jody Valenti and Donna Loria, who were just sitting in a car in the Bronx, hanging out, talking. And Loria, as when a son of Sam approached, he pulled his pistol, pointed it inside the car, and fired multiple uh, rounds. Loria was killed instantly, while Valenti was seriously wounded, but survived the attack. And this attack marked the beginning of a series of shootings that terrorized New York for over a year. 
Moving to the next attack, you're looking at like just under a month and a half or so. It was on October 23rd of 1976 that David Berkowitz decided he would kill his next set of people. And you'll start noticing a pattern in the people he's targeting to kill. Berkowitz attacked a couple, Carl DeNaro, 20 years old, and Rosemary Keenan, 18, who were sitting in Keenan's parked car, much like his previous, and Keenan managed to drive away despite her injuries, but DeNaro had been shot in the head. Luckily, he survived and was left Whoa. with a metal plate in his skull after the attack. So Keenan, uh, Rosemary Keenan just reacted perfectly, just got the fuck out of there. And luckily, uh, DeNaro was able to survive that. So another failed killing. So 0 for 3. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's got, well, he got, well, he got uh, killed one person in the previous attack. Oh, he did. But the other one survived. Remember the stabbing? The stabbing, nobody died. The first shooting on July 29th, one person died. The other person did not. Oh, okay. I thought they both lived. I thought they both lived. Okay. Oh, no, yeah, no, sorry. And then on November 27th, like a month later, this one in Queens again, Donna DeMassey, 16, and Joanne Lamino, 18, were also shot as they were just having a chat on the porch of Lamino's home. God They were damn. just hanging out, chatting. He pulled up in a car with the gun, got out, shot them both, and immediately left. It's like worst nightmare shit. He's also not really paying attention to whether they live or die. He's shooting them and then fucking running away like a coward. He just doesn't care if they live or die. He just pulls the trigger and that seems to is be it enough. the act of shooting then that is like the thing? He probably just doesn't really understand about like the bullet needs to go through a part of the body. He's probably kind of the way that the way that you were talking about the knife and how he was grossed out by the knife and how it was way weirder than he wanted it to be. And he thought it was going to be like, ah, yeah, like, just like a stab in the gut and they would just crumple over yeah, dead. And like, I, they feel do like in the movies. I feel like in terms of the gun, like he just is like raising his possibility of getting a kill, but he's still just kind of like doing like a video game version. He just kind of walks up and goes bang, 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 bang. And then just runs away. Cause so he has like the movie in his head, just like in his perceived out die in battle. Yeah. Like he, it's all idealized fake. Yeah. Agreed. And uh, these two that he shot, both of them lived as well. Damasi was shot in the neck, but recovered while Lamino, uh, Lamino ended up giving a little bit of a worse outcome where she survived. But from the waist down, she ended up being paralyzed from the attack, which just fucking sucks. November 27th leads to January 30th. Uh, He gives it like a little more breathing room before his next attack. Uh, And this is when he fires and shoots at Christine Fruit, 26 years old, and her fiance, John Deal, who were sitting in their car having a conversation when he just walks up next to them, points the gun at both of them, pulls the trigger, and Froond, who was hit twice, died hours later in the hospital, but Deal uh, ended up, so John Deal ended up surviving the attack. So we got God. one of the two of them. So this is, this is like, I'm trying to think of the equivalent that would be closer to modern day. Uh, like when the dude in, I think it was in D.C., hid in his car and he sniped people oh my God, who were yeah, like getting gas or yep. walking, just like whatever. And it was sort of a terror thing where it was less of a like oh my god uh this guy's targeting blonde haired women instead of just like anyone could be a target there's just some fucker yep. out there being a fucking idiot shooting people yeah yeah but he is there is a weird like pattern to who he's attacking usually young couples 
or, or a young, young, a young pair, whether it be two friends or a boyfriend or girlfriend, but they're always in their early twenties, late teens for the most part. Uh, Christine Frund was 26, the oldest so far. Um, and it's also important to mention the cops are attempting to find this guy at this point. They know that there's a killer out there. They've been trying to piece it together, but just an unmarked gun that is not bought under his name, wandering around fucking New York City, just shooting people at seemingly random is yeah. very difficult for the 1976 police force to fucking figure out who it's going, who's trying to do it. Unlike a serial killer like Dahmer or Gacy, where the victims were gay men or the less dead as they're known in kind of like the true crime. Um, these, because these were just like, young kids and you know girls and boys the cops were on it right away they were just immediately trying to figure out what the hell was going on they just have very little to go from at this point then we move into march 8th after the january 30th attack in columbia university where a student virginia i'm gonna butcher this last name i apologize voskarishian voskarishian who was 19 was walking home when berkowitz confronted her one-on-one we don't know what was said and he pointed the gun at her shortly after, shot her, and killed her instantly. Damn. God fucking damn. Uh, she had reportedly tried to defend herself with her school books, but obviously, you know, wasn't, was unable to do so. And it was after this attack, this Columbia University student, that the cops could no longer keep this under wraps any longer. Like, there were whispers that there might be a serial killer out there, but no formal acknowledgement by the police force or by the news beyond, obviously, the reporting of the killings. And this this last kill here in March and March kind of bookended that secrecy from the police and the early shootings in by uh, Berkowitz. While they didn't immediately lead to the conclusion of a serial killer at large, the first few attacks were seen as kind of isolated incidents. It was after the shooting on January 30th, 1977, that police began to finally connect the dots. Ballistic evidence linked this shooting to the earlier incidents that were thought to be just one off incidents. It was just by the, the bullets left over. And uh, by March of 1977, following the death of Virginia on, the, on campus, the police finally acknowledged to the public that the shootings were the work of one single man and were likely a serial killer throughout New York. And this was a significant moment as it was the first time the authorities publicly announced that a serial killer who would later be dubbed Son of Sam was on the loose. And this had an immediate impact on just society at large in New York City at this time. Uh, there was a huge effect on the public. It's the lock your doors moment. Absolutely. There yeah. was significant increase in fear and anxiety among New Yorkers. The randomness and brutality of the attacks, especially targeting young women, caused widespread alarm. Many people completely altered their routines, especially at night. Nightlife in some areas of the city saw a downturn with fewer people venturing out in the dark. I read uh, a couple articles that said that attendance to disco, like the nightclub discos at that time, went down by 80 to 90% after they were announced that this guy was wandering around New York City. That is, that's like COVID-like loss of like numbers in terms of business, even after businesses were staying open. Like that, that's a, that's a lot. You're, you can't stay open after that. You just have no business. Sure. Women in particular took extra precautions. It was noted by many women with long hair, long dark hair to either cut their hair or dye it in response to the reports that the killer might be targeting women uh, women with such characteristics. So people were just completely changing their hair. There was an increased sense of community vigilance. People were more cautious about unfamiliar individuals in their neighborhoods and were more likely to report suspicious activities to the police. And the public sphere added immense pressure on the New York Police Department and other law enforcement agencies to catch the killer 
making them hopefully work together as the one thing we've also learned in true crime is that the different branches of law enforcement try to like compete against each other instead of fucking work with one another. Right. And this led to what was one of the largest manhunts in the city's history. But after that March uh, incident, it wouldn't be long until April 17th, 1977, the next victim would be shot. Alexander Esau, 20 years old, and Valentina Siriani, 18, were sitting, what else, in a car, having a conversation, when, who else, the son of Sam walked up with his gun, shot at them both twice, and they were fa- both found dead at the scene. Siriani uh, only lived a couple blocks away from where the shooting had occurred. She was just very, just hanging out with, I assume, her boyfriend. Then June 26 rolls around. He gives it about a month and a half before he attacks again. And Berkowitz attacks somebody by the name of Salvatore Lupo, a 20-year-old, and Judy Placido, 17, after they both left a disco. And be, uh, despite being shot, they both survived this attack. Uh, Placido, who was shot in the temple, shoulder, and back, later recounted hearing the gunshots, but not immediately realizing that she had been shot at all. Which, I, I mean, your body just is like instant shock, I imagine. You just can't feel anything for a bit. Right. Uh, glad that they both fucking survived, especially being shot in the temple. That's crazy. His final attack, however, would come the next month, basically one year to the date from his first kill. His first attack was in July 29th. The last one is July 31st, uh, 1977. He attacks a woman by the name of Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante, both 20, and they were in a car in Brooklyn when Berkowitz shot them. Moskowitz died from her injuries while Violante was blinded in one eye and partially blinded in the other. But this would be the last attack before the police finally were able to get on his tail and maybe even capture this guy. So yeah, all those kills, one year. He went and just shot a fuck ton of people in a one year, basically every month. People were just fucking terrified as fuck. Yeah. You know, every other month-ish, people were terrified. The entire like living situation in those areas utterly changed. uh, And society was like, just, you know, the 70s, even like the 70s was the last bit of, I feel like that communal safety feeling that the 60s kind of had, maybe even the 50s really had. Because then the 80s and the 90s, I feel like things started changing of like, don't trust strangers, don't go in cars, don't walk anywhere without a parent. Where before, you know, we were, we even have stories from just like serial killers pass of like going away and riding around with the local handyman and like all kinds of weird shit. I just wonder if Berkowitz is the is maybe the final tipping point for that kind of safe feeling in in america do, do you think he was just getting off on like feeling like the devil yeah it was the pure violence for him um he he was leaving like sort of notes to people uh kind of the cops but they were so vague and they were they really didn't mean anything and they couldn't trace it to anybody uh, and they were just basically nonsense but berkowitz thought of himself in the moment as a fucking genius like he he followed all of his his murders and his attacks in the news he was obsessed with like the attention again he really wanted to be something or be somebody uh and then you know he just like lived in that in that year uh, a span of never getting caught he thought he was just better than the cops and for a while i don't think he was better than the cops just not much for them to fucking go on dna evidence isn't really a thing yet uh and you know ballistics is like okay one of how many fucking guns in new york city that can't be traced to anybody what are you gonna fucking do and what we learn as we continue here uh, is that his capture is one of those just like happenstances that people, we just got lucky. 
They just got lucky that they fucking got the guy. In the summer of 1977, New York City was now a cauldron of fear simmering under the relentless heat of a seemingly endless heat wave of fucking violence. The city's streets, usually alive with vibrant hustle of urban life, had taken a much more cautious rhythm than the palpable tension of a metropolis under siege. At the heart of the siege was this shadow and specter that had come, become to be known as Son of Sam, who had turned the city's vibrant nights into utter silent, uh, eventless existence. Mm. As August dawned, the police were still no fucking closer to catching the elusive killer than they had been a year earlier. The son of Sam had become almost mythical in the way he was being seen by the police, a presence that lurked in the collective psyche of New Yorkers that could just not be caught no matter how hard they tried. But the tides of fate were about to finally turn as seemingly inconsequential events converged to bring down David Berkowitz once and for all. All of it was because of a parking ticket. Oh my God. (laughs) That's so good. The break in the case that came not from any high-tech investigative techniques of the era, but from a simple, mundane piece of paper, a fucking parking ticket. On the night of his last known attack, the killer had struck in the neighborhood of Bath Beach in Brooklyn. In the rush to apprehend the perpetrator, a crucial detail was initially overlooked. A parking ticket issued to a Ford Galaxy near the crime scene. Now, at this point, the case was in the hands of a man by the name Detective James Justice. All right. Love no, it. Love it. Off. Marvel Comics 1960s character. James Justice, though, spelt J-U-S-T-U-S. So not spelt like the word we know, but fucking amazing fucking name for a detective okay. of the Yonkers Police Department. When he received a call from the New York City Police Department, the task force specifically within the NYPD that was uh, set to deal with Son of Sam. They were calling it to inquire about an individual by the name of David Berkowitz. The NYPD had traced the Ford Galaxy to Berkowitz, but what linked him to the, but what had linked him to the Son of Sam, they weren't quite sure yet. And so, just to, yeah, that's the car he drove. Okay. By the way, when he was driving around cruising to kill people, Ford Galaxy. That's what he was cruising in. <laughs> uh, Justice with a meticulous eye for detail. That had kind of become his trademark. Trademark. With, I know it's ridiculous, dude. It's it's very it's cartoonish from his head injuries to the fucking cop. Yeah, just reading the sentences is just funny to hear you say them. <laughs> it's fucking wild. Um, yeah, but he, his meticulous eye for detail had become his trademark within his like crew of cops that he was with all the time, and so he delved into the records. Berkowitz had previously attracted police attention for other minor offenses. Remember, the man was an arsonist and just set fire to goddamn everything. In an attempt to kill his neighbor, mind you, setting a fire and then dropping some bullets into the fire with the hope that when he what? walked out, did what? you forget that from last episode? So he I set absolutely a fire. forgot that. So yeah, he set a fire in front of his apartment building and then threw a handful of bullets into the fire with the hope that when his neighbor Sam Carr came out, the bullets would go off from the fire and then randomly, I assume, like kill him. See and, what like, I'm pierce- saying about the like, the like just imaginary nature of the acts that he undertakes like it's right just yes like, he thinks it's gonna work because it could happen and it's like he's like yeah i'll just do it and then it'll happen like it's like and it's a perfect crime nobody yeah. fucking know it was me when the random bullets went off and the it's just nonsense thinking and so it doesn't surprise me when he shoots people and then books it before he knows if they're fucking dead or not he just he doesn't care he's just he think he's doing the act. it's like a movie yeah i don't know yeah it's all up in his head and it's like it's so satisfying for him in, in his own mind's eye. 
So as, he, as Detective Justice delved into the records with his trademark eye for detail uh, and Berkowitz having attracted the police attention from all those minor offenses, combined with the parking ticket, placed him squarely on the radar of the task force. It was simply that. He had a parking ticket, and when they looked up to him, and a parking ticket within the, the actual crime scene area uh, matched to a guy who had a bunch of fucking minor crimes. They're like, well, let's make this guy. It's probably this guy. Let's go check this dude. And so they staked him out. And on finally, on August 10th in 1977, the police descended on Pine Street in Yonkers where Berkowitz had been living. The night was just long and filled with tension, I can imagine, not knowing when or if he would come out. And as officers staked out his apartment, waiting for the man who had held the city hostage in terror to emerge, they made an, uh, an initial accidental jump. One of the neighbors had come out and looked curiously into the Ford Galaxy because they it looked like there was like stuff in there, I guess. And so when they came out and started looking at the Ford Galaxy, all the fucking cops came out and like surrounded them. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're just we're just the neighbors when they were like, OK, you know, they started telling about what was going on. And the neighbors were like, yeah, no, that makes sense. He's very weird. Uh, so the cops went back to hiding and they waited some more. Eventually, Berkowitz did emerge and approach his car. And that's when the police closed in. And there was no dramatic shootout, no chase sequence in any fashion. No, much like the coward he's been from the very beginning, the final confrontation was quiet and meek. He simply surrendered in stark contrast to the chaos that he had wrought up to this point, threw his hands up, and just went with them quietly. It was just over like that. So insane. As the news of his capture spread through the city, a collective sigh of relief seemed to rise from the streets of New York, finally. The shadow that had hung over the city had been finally lifted, and the, but the scars would remain. And in custody... Berkowitz's confession was as chilling as it was a surreal. He eventually spoke of demonic forces, claimed that his neighbor's dog was one of the demons that had commanded him to kill. The reality, however, was far more prosaic and far more disturbing. Berkowitz was just a deeply troubled individual whose delusions had spilled over into violence in reality. But beneath the surface of this already bizarre, violent saga lies a twist so bizarre it seems ripped from the pages of a pulp novel a tale of dark rituals, satanic cults, and a narrative that unfolded in the aftermath of Berkowitz's reign of terror. A seed of doubt that Berkowitz was even guilty in the first place. You see, as the dust settled on the Son of Sam case, with Berkowitz securely behind bars, a disquieting undercurrent began to emerge. Now keep in mind, we are now in 1977, Moving into the early 80s. This is like pre-satanic panic? Yeah, the satanic panic is bubbling up. So whispers, uh, whispered rumors and half-spoken suspicions coalesced into a theory as dark as it was compelling. Berkowitz, the lone gunman, was not so alone after all. The city, still reeling from the echoes of his 44 caliber madness, found itself confronting a new, more insidious fear. In the grim aftermath of the Son of Sam's capture, it was in the dimly lit confines of his prison cell that Berkowitz began to weave a new narrative. Gone were the tales of demonic do dogs and infernal orders, and in their place were claims of a satanic cult, a hidden society that orchestrated the carnage using Berkowitz as their instrument of choice. He was nothing more than a tool for the arm of Satan from the satanic cult. 
His letters, once filled with the ramblings of a man possessed about a demon and nonsense, now shifted tone. They now spoke of rituals and rites, of shadowy figures enacting their dark agendas on the urban canvas of New York City. He spoke of the Process Church of the Final Judgment, a name that sent shivers down the spine of those who dared to investigate. Psychologists and criminal uh, profiles dissected his words, searching for truth amid, amid the tangle of alleged confessions. And th was this a case of a disturbed mind seeking to dilute his guilt? Or were his revelations the key to unlocking, unlocking a larger, more horrifying truth of what monsters lurk in the city streets? I mean, I don't know if he's trying to assuage his guilt in any circumstance, but... Bro, like the scary church of serious de <laughs> demons. Uh, excuse me. It's the process church of the final judgment. I feel like if anything, this is goes along with everything we've been saying this entire time. Dude just has this like fantasy world he wants to live in. And this just at, like, well, all right. So I couldn't be the hero, but now I'll be your villain. He's <laughs> like every dude in the corner of a party. Like, I'm so brooding. They'll have to talk to me. Until he gets caught, and now he's not like, I will be your villain. He's like, I was just a tool to the villain. I wasn't actually a villain. Prison kind of sucks. I was just a tool. Because, uh, again, this came like a year after he had been sitting in prison for a while. This is like something that came well later. You think he just realized prison wasn't like a movie version of prison, too? And it just yeah, sucks yeah, when it. he realized it wasn't whatever fantasy he thought it was going to be. Uh, I still think when he got caught, he thought he was like getting scot-free i am like, the darkness <laughs> yeah exactly uh he, he probably saw yeah he would be a guy who'd be like man the joker movie changed my life that movie blew my mind i feel like he would love that fucking it, movie. it has the same vibe <laughs> it's does. like i'm the joker that's baby. the best movie that's ever been made there's no movie with a more honest message than the Joker. Don't you get the underlying meaning of society not paying attention to mental illness? You just don't get it. Yeah, it is the exact same vibe. Yeah, the notion of a satanic cult with its rituals and dark ceremonies provided a chilling backdrop to Berkowitz's crimes. It was a narrative that played into the deepest fears and most primal anxieties of the public, a hidden evil lurking just out of sight. And that's when we have Maury Terry enter the scene about the 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 uh, author of the book i mentioned earlier maury terry was an investigative journalist with a penchant for the obscure obscure and the occult terry armed with the relentless curiosity and what he claimed as a skeptic's eye delved deep into berkowitz's claims his journey was one of weird labyrinthian twists and turns truths and lies taking him into the underbelly of a city already scarred by violence and fear and in his work, the book called The Ultimate Evil, Terry painted a picture of a city under siege, not just by a lone gunman, but by a cabal of darkness. His claims were bold. The Son of Sam killings were not isolated incidents, but part of a larger tapestry of satanic crime. At the center of this maelstrom of speculation stood the alleged orchestrator of this hidden horror, the Process Church of the Final Judgment. And Maury Terry's investigations painted a picture of a cult with tendrils stretching far beyond the city's border, a network of the nefarious that fed on fear and violence across the entirety of the United States of America. Yet, for all the ink spilled and hours spent in pursuit of this elusive quarry, the solid, undeniable proof of such an organization's involvement in the Son of Sam killings remains just as out of reach as it was when it was first brought up. The truth, it seemed, 
was as elusive as the shadows at dusk. The man was so intent, however, he wrote the book regardless of evidence. And I will say, there may be some evidence that son of Sam David Berkowitz might have known somebody that might have been involved in some sort of satanic ritual thing, but not like a mega church, like a group of like three or four people that might even just like have enjoyed the thought of being Satanist, but they weren't actually going to kill people. He like read it from Marvel comics. Yeah. Yeah. He really just kind of created a fiction out of whatever little narrative of truth might be there, but I still couldn't really confirm it with any solid evidence that he did have any connections to this like satanic cult. The reaction though, when the book came out, didn't really care for what was truth or not. It was varied. Sure but it was passionate as hell. The book sold wildly well, and to some, Terry's theories were nothing more than fanciful concoctions of a conspiracy-minded author. To others, they were revelations, lifting the veil on a hidden world of satanic rites and ritualistic killings. Satan was tipping the United States in the direction of sin. The authorities, for their part, however... Excelsior! (laughs) Listen, if we're going to live in a comic book narrative with this guy, we're going to speak like one, okay? Uh, the authorities, for their part, though, remain largely unconvinced. The lack of concrete evidence, the convenient timing of Berkowitz's revelations, and the complexities of corroborating such outlandish claims left many of the law enforcement just completely skeptical, skeptical of this guy's uh, claims, obviously. And the cult theory, whether believed or dismissed, seeped into the cultural soil of New York and beyond. It spawned documentaries, movies, countless debates, The Son of Sam case was no longer just a tale of a twisted gunman who was just so upset with his own mediocrity, he just shot people. And now it had morphed into a saga of sinister proportions, almost giving Son of Sam fucking exactly what he wanted in the first place. Like, this book is exactly what David Berkowitz had wanted. He has become the iconic character of his dreams, whether hero or villain. And of course, leaning into the satanic panic at the right place, at the right time, with the right author who had the narrative he needed, did so much to dilute what the truth was of Son of Sam and David Berkowitz. The man who just got really mad that his mommies were not his real mommies and then his real mommy wasn't the person he thought he was, went to the army, came back and decided to kill people. Like, that's all there is to this man. He wasn't special. He was a nothing, whiny, pathetic excuse for a human. He isn't this fucking tool of the satanic cult. It just didn't happen. And in the collective imagination, the streets of New York now are still kind of cast in a different light. They are now mixed with the truth and the myth that is Son of Sam. The city had faced terror before, but the notion of a a hidden evil operating in its mists that they couldn't really catch added a new layer of horror to the urban mythos. Because now you have just a parasite, a disease that can forever be pointed to as an enemy of the people with no real head or organizational body to go after, an evil that is pervasive and there to use their in-control narrative at any given time. And David Berkowitz was the perfect fucking dude for these people to latch on to and march forward with their narrative, especially since he was going along with it. And even before that, he was talking about a demon voice coming out of a dog. Like he was just the perfect fucking dude. And at the end of the day, David Berkowitz is still alive to this day. He is still alive. There are interviews with him as early as 2020, 2020, uh, 2021. From what I've seen, he is still pushing the same narrative as always. Um, 
And it just sort of sucks that while this guy did get life in prison and he did not get off on parole, he still got kind of the attention and the iconic light that he was looking for. And that's where we sort of end the Son of Sam story on this weird kind of in-between of he kind of glad he got caught and his crimes got stopped. But in a way, the man still kind of got what he was looking for on some level. And that's it. That's the story of Son of Sam. Just a fascinating sort of like American myth. It feels yeah. very similar. Like I'm from California, right? So it feels similar to like the Manson case in the sense of like what it did to the psyche of people and like what they saw and they look at people outside. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know. I think that's kind of interesting. And I think he's kind of like uh, an interesting sort of um, proto version of a type of person we see a lot today. Maybe not in the extreme sort of context of like shooting people with a snub nose revolver yeah. around town <laughs> yeah. to like make his dreams come true or whatever, but just people who are going out into the world and acting uh, like they think things are rather than based on experience. I don't yes. know. And it also goes, like you were saying about Manson and stuff, it, it also goes to the idea of what the public at large, it, it, how they handle media and how susceptible they are to media and what media's role in panic and things of that nature yeah. is. And also the idea that, hey, there are people out there who will take advantage of a situation. I'm positive that dude was like, a book and money. I don't yeah. care about the truth. That's how it comes across. Yeah, that author, I feel like exactly what it was, probably pushing that satanic, because we're moving, like I said, into the 80s. Satanic panic is like fucking frothing at the mouth at this point. Yeah. Hilariously, only a few years after he'd be in prison, he'd actually be sharing in prison and being in prison as another uh, of another serial killer, Arthur Shawcross, a.k.a. the Genesee River Killer. Uh, way more of a heinous story behind him. But yeah, we were also remember at a time where like serial killers are operating all kind of at the same time. They're all sharing jail together around the same time. Ed Kemper was notoriously like trained uh, another guy that I think Pee Wee Gaskins. Uh, we'll talk about Reading him. Notes. Uh, another time. Like, here's how I do it. <laughs> Thank you all so much for joining us on this little uh, true crime journey of Son of Sam. We're off to go do a mini-sode for patreon.com slash Illuminati pod. Please, if you still have time. Come check us out. Come see our live show at the Terragram Ballroom out in beautiful, sunny Los Angeles. Tickets are for sale and in the link in the description below. There's also a link on the Patreon if you want to go get it there. Sign up for the Patreon. Test flight of what a live show is like, complete with Mathis's absolutely insane slideshow. I call it educational. Edutainment. Yes. Okay. Fungicational. Fungicational. Non-fungible token cryptocurrency oh we have a collectible coin at theyeti.com slash illuminati <laughs> actual cryptocurrency cryptid currency cryptid currency yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> go grab your collectible illuminati coin while they last i love that at the uh, yeti.com slash illuminati thank you guys so much we appreciate you we love you we'll see you next time goodbye Bye. Not to be trusted. Don't trust them. Evil creatures. Evil creatures. Don't trust demons, kids. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Illuminati Podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the. I don't know who they are. There's two 
What? Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. No. Neo and Trinity. No. I don't understand, and I probably never will. Let me just tell you right now that there's two. Leon Kennedy and Claire Redfield. I'm telling you, I think he literally just looked up famous duos. Cheech and Chong. And it's just been going through the list ever since. I'm trying to dig deep. Which one of you is uh, Dick Powell? Me? Your name's Jesse Cox. <laughs> Podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by Alex and Jesse. Like a shooting star across the sky that's actually a UFO.